It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What you missed this week, I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was another What You Miss from home. First, Joe spoke with Nobel laureate Paul Krugman, distinguished professor of economics at City University of New York, New York Times columnist and author of his newest book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. Krugman told Joe why he thought the federal government's fiscal response to the coronavirus pandemic has been way insufficient so far. Oh, I think the response has been two things. It's it's way insufficient. uh, on several fronts, and um, and there's it's bottlenecked. The the money isn't really flowing. So uh, the uh, so uh, I'm very disappointed in this this deal uh, because there's no state and local fiscal relief, and that's a gigantic hole that's opening up. Um, and it's obvious everyone everyone knows it's there, and it's going to be a real you know, impediment to economic recovery because states and local governments can be forced into severe austerity. So there's nothing there. Uh, the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, um, the, you know, it's all been spoken for, but it looks like a lot of the money went to the wrong people. It didn't go to the small businesses. And unemployment benefits, which are actually, I think, the most important piece of all of this, given, given what's happening to the job market, um, is you know, we have all these... Uh, State, it's been being run through the states, which I think is a big mistake, um, and the and they just can't handle the load. So, uh, so no, we're, we're our fiscal response. You know, it, it could have been worse, but that's in America. Things can always be worse, but uh, but it, it's it's looking like we're falling really way short of the challenge here. So we all know what a uh, big fan of the New York Times President Trump is, and I'm sure he reads your columns regularly. Uh, if you were to call you in and ask you to sort of design the ideal program to keep the economy afloat during this period of widespread uh, shelter in place, what would be the ideal design? Okay. Um, we should, first of all, we need to unbottleneck those unemployment benefits. Uh, the Canadians just set up a special federal program. They're federal, not ours. Uh, with a with a portal and a, a hotline, and Canadians who, who needed um, a COVID-related unemployment benefits were getting it within days, two thousand a month, uh, just you know, quickly. Um, we we could still do that. Um, the second thing is we need several hundred billion dollars in aid to state and local governments because they're on the front lines of dealing with this, 
And then uh, the, the business lending is, you know, it, conceptually we've got all, we've got pieces of all the right elements in our program, but we just don't have, they're either, we either just don't have the administrative capacity or we just haven't allocated enough money. So, but I would have said state and local and, uh, and a federalization of the unemployment benefits would be the most important things right now. Let's switch it over the, to the uh, Fed side. The Fed has moved extremely uh, rapidly by Fed standards, yeah. uh, building on tools that were developed during the last crisis, even expanding them. And you mentioned state and local actually setting up a municipal lending facility. What grade would you give uh, Jerome Powell? And then what further do you think is within the Fed's potential toolkit to further ameliorate this crisis? No, I think I, I give Powell an A. I mean, I don't. Uh, the the Fed has actually. Uh, I mean, they've gone. Uh, <laughs> they've gone uh, very extreme. I mean, they 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 took I think the right point of view, which is that that uh, there may be some loans that uh, some purchases that we'll regret later, but we'll regret not stabilizing the financial system a whole lot more. So they 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 took all the risks on the upside of of, of doing too much. So now the Fed. I mean, there was a point there a few weeks back. When it really was looking like 2008, you could see that 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 liquidity was drying up and markets were starting to freeze, and the Fed just threw uh, an incredible amount of money, trillions of dollars, at it, which was the right thing to do. So, no, but the one thing that that we uh, uh, at least appear to have avoided is a is a financial sector crisis fallout from this. Every, uh, everything else is kind of going to hell, and uh, because we're we're not getting money out the door fast enough, but the Fed is getting its kind of money out the door right. fast enough. Would you like to see, I mean, you've been, you mentioned a couple of times already the need for more aid for city and states, and maybe that will come from Congress in a later round. Do you think the Fed could do more on the muni side than what it's done and expand that facility so that it can uh, further ease uh, the austerity that we're already seeing uh, across the country? Not too much. The problem is the, the, the constraint on state and local is not that they can't sell bonds, because uh, the Fed has actually moved to stabilize. It's the fact that they're basically not allowed to sell bonds. I mean, they can't to some extent for financing, but state and local governments are under constitutional rules. I think 49 and 50 states have, have constitutional rules requiring a balanced budget. Uh, most cities are, are under rules. They're, they they probably could borrow. I mean, if if, if they weren't under those uh, those rules, uh, since everybody is fairly sure that this is a temporary shock, they probably could do some borrowing, but they, they themselves are not allowed to. So this is outside, you know, the, uh, right. I hate to, I have, I have left uh, friends uh, who, who say, why doesn't the Fed just give people lots of money? Um, and the trouble is that's not in the Fed's remit, and that includes state and local governments. It can't just give states money. It can, it can free up their, their borrowing, but they but the trouble is that the states are not allowed to do large-scale borrowing. So this is not the Fed's job. This is Congress's job. Well, obviously, you know, so much of the country has been under de facto lockdown for several weeks. And we see various state governors sort of getting ready to go and talking about opening up. From an economics perspective, I mean, nobody thinks we're going to wait until there are absolutely zero cases or zero risks. That doesn't seem realistic. How should governors or the White House think about the trade-offs from the sort of pure virus side versus the cost, the economic degradation that we see day after day of staying under lockdown? 
Okay, the, the thing to say is, first of all, we're a rich country. Uh, the present discounted value of our future GDP is uh, uh, you know, effectively infinite. So we can afford to, uh, to provide disaster relief to ourselves for a long time. The debt is not a problem. Um, the cost of a premature uh, loosening up uh, in terms of life and death, are just huge. I mean, they, we, we are just the numbers are. You know, how many how many people does an affected person in turn infect? And you need to get R below one, which it is. Maybe in New York, I think nationally, it's probably still above one. You need to get it below one for a long enough time so that the pool of people who are still infected is small enough. Uh, that a much ramped up testing program gives you other ways to contain it. And if you don't do that, if you start to open up, uh, when we are still have a lot of people out there and don't remotely have the testing capacity, then you're looking at a second wave of, uh, of, of deaths. I mean, we, we've seen that happen in a couple of places. We've seen that happen in places like Singapore. Uh, and the costs of that are immense. So this is where you really want to err on the side of caution. It's, this is, this is, uh, I think, even in purely right. economic terms, this is the idea that now is the time to open is crazy. While Washington debated the next steps for stimulus, the oil market made history. The price of oil didn't just crash, it redefined what many people thought was possible as the WTI May crude contract sank below zero for the first time and kept falling deep into negative territory. We spoke about these moves with a variety of experts, starting with Rob Arnott. He's the chairman and co-founder of Research Affiliates, a sub-advisor to money managers, which advises on more than $195 billion in investment assets, including those at PIMCO. Well, firstly, um, uh, when people describe it as unprecedented, it really is. The notion of a major market going significantly negative, falling in price not by 100%, but by 300% in a day, is um, uh, remarkable and without precedent. The background on it has been discussed endlessly. The USO ETF, uh, uh, perhaps foolishly, uh, uh, tended to concentrate almost singularly on the nearby month, uh, right up till uh, expiration of the, or until the uh, contract had to be rolled, lest one be forced to take delivery. But be that as it may, uh, that may have been one of the catalysts. The big catalyst, of course, is the shutdown of the economy. And uh, I think this is going to be seen in the years ahead, in the decades ahead, as one of the most catastrophic overreaches of government ever. Uh, we can see the East Asian countries, including the democracies, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, getting the virus under control by identifying mm -hmm. carriers, isolating carriers, and waiting it out. Um, they would post police or military at uh, office towers, uh, apartment blocks, um, shopping centers, uh, to take people's temperature. And anyone with a fever, pull, pull them aside, put them under um, home right. quarantine until results were back. And it worked. We, we didn't do that. We decided, and Western Europe decided, Let's shutter the economy and then shower the uh, people whose lives and uh, hopes have been shattered uh, with cash. Um, that doesn't mm -hmm. cut it. That's not a good answer. 
and it doesn't address the bigger problem, which is still, of course, a virus and how it's wreaking havoc. Rob, um, when we look at what's going on, uh, fundamentally, what's driving the plunge in oil prices, yes, there was the expiration and the rollover of the contract, but the undercurrent here is a collapse in demand and way too much supply. Do you see other commodities being forced into deeper contangos as well? For instance, copper, metals, uh, any other commodity out there, are they going to be in a similar situation here? Well, I'm not an expert on commodities, but I've seen this before. Um, There will be, uh, dare I use the word contagion, across to other commodity markets. Uh, We will see this pattern uh, in other commodity markets. Uh, the big the big issue is how do we get the economy restarted? Um, the plunge in uh, oil prices and the plunge in commodities in general is, is really a uh, symptom of the underlying disease, and the disease here is not COVID. It's the shutdown of the economy. Um, I wrote a piece called This Too Shall Pass, about three weeks ago, stating the obvious. Roll the clock forward 10 years, we will have a vibrant, healthy, fast-growing economy again. Um, Roll it forward three years, I'm not so sure. Uh, We've got 30 million businesses in the United States. If 5 million of them are dead by mid-year, that would be utterly unsurprising. If 10 million are dead, that would be only mildly surprising. That's a lot of businesses gone, a lot of jobs gone and you don't switch them back on like turning on a light switch. Uh, There's also human consequence. People talk about the deadliness of COVID. There's deadliness in the shutdown. Every thousand uh, new unemployed, if you look at the statistics, lead to approximately one more death from suicide and two two to three more deaths from overdose, Uh, not to mention pharmaceutical supply chains making it um, more difficult for people with heart or lung disease or cancer or diabetes to get their meds. Um, it won't be, let's put it this way, I will be very surprised if the, if the uh, lethal consequences, the deadly consequences of the shutdown don't exceed the deaths associated with COVID. Yeah, and Rob, I, I mean, I could just tell you here in New York, I mean, the lethal cons- consequences are uh, front and center for a lot of us uh, uh, who can look out our windows and, and see what's happening in our neighborhoods. I am curious, though, when you talk about the recovery, uh, what does that recovery look like to you in terms of the type of businesses, the type of sectors that are going to not only survive, but potentially thrive? And which type of industries may get left behind in that recovery? Well, Certainly, certain industries are going to take a long time to recover. People aren't going to be eager to fly uh, uh, for at least months and probably a year or more uh, because of concerns that COVID could come back. Uh, Restaurants, uh, theaters, um, sporting uh, venues, concerts, uh, these are going to take a while to recover. Um, And by a while, I mean uh, not months, but a couple of years. the other thing to note is uh, uh, businesses that are publicly traded, for the most part, are well politically mm-hmm. connected and have a lot of mm-hmm. employees. So it won't be at all surprising if, let's say, the number of S&P 500 companies that go bust from this is 10 or 20 companies um, as compared with uh, 10 or 20 percent of the small private businesses. 
uh, right. uh, the implication of that is that the value stocks that are getting savaged because uh, they have skinnier margins than the growth stocks and are more vulnerable um, uh, may turn out to be worth quite a bit more than their current deeply discounted valuations. So I think there's going to be an opportunity mm-hmm. to pivot into a value bias, and that opportunity is more or less here and now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Then we spoke with Yossi Sheffi, professor of engineering systems and director of the Center for Transportation at MIT, about the impact the price plunge has on the oil market supply chain. First of all, wow, we saw something unprecedented, clearly. Um, what we saw is um, no demand for oil because there's no way to store it. So unless you are in the business of oil storage or, or owning very large capacity tankers, that uh, float on the ocean and are used for oil storage, there's, you know, you are, no, you are losing money. The, the oil is just not selling. So the question for uh, the oil companies is when is this going to turn? We see that the future contracts are not quite negative, um, higher, not great prices, but uh, higher, because people are betting that in May, June, July, the market will turn. It's a question of when the market will turn, and a lot of it has to do with how do we take control of the uh, coronavirus. Yeah, that's an unanswerable question right now. Perhaps you can answer this, Professor Sheffi. Um, there are articles over the last couple of weeks about how much food is being wasted, which is a huge contrast to the scenes of empty grocery store shelves when people do make their way to the grocery store. Uh, The Dairy Farmers of America estimates that farmers are dumping as many as 3.7 million gallons of milk each day. What is going on and how do we fix this from your point of view? Okay, first of all, we should all acknowledge there's no shortage of food. There's spot shortages of some items and all the pictures of empty uh, shelves are being taken at the end of the day, the close of the store. You come in the morning, you can take a picture of full shelves. That's one point to be made. But certainly, there is a problem. And the problem is that uh, about half the food consumption in the United States is with restaurants and institutions. Supply chain are tailored for specific market. So a, sup- a supermarket uses a vetted network of people that they trust and know of producers, warehouses, transportation providers. They just don't allow the stuff to be carried by any, uh, any trucker. They want to make sure the temperature is controlled, everything is controlled, and they'll get the stuff that's not going to make anybody sick. It's very hard to shift supply between channels. And there's only so much capacity for packaged food in supermarkets. Think about meat package, meat package, flour, yeah. rice. Stores are not equipped to store and break down hefty stock of flowers. Now, a wholesaler will have to retool in order to do it, but this will take them more time than they expect the pandemic uh, would last, so they don't invest. Another problem so, is that so consumer demand is not enough to, uh, to compensate for restaurants and institutions. 
also households are consuming packaged goods, bread and pasta, a lot less fresh food. Yeah. Most of the stuff that you see is fresh food that's being wasted because it cannot get to market. The producers are not equipped to clean the crops to household standards, which is all regulated. So uh, also people yeah. who have contracts to some food commodity in uh, China or elsewhere are not equipped to supply supermarkets. So, Professor, the, it's it's interesting because, I, I mean, what we're seeing on the consumer side, it sort of is understandable that you would have, you know, food companies that normally cater to restaurants and others wouldn't necessarily be able to make that shift to the consumer side. But talk to us about what we saw in the medical space, because it was a little confusing, I guess, for those of us who aren't experts to understand why they couldn't ramp up production of masks, gowns, ventilators, things that they were already normally supplying to hospitals and healthcare providers. Why didn't we have a supply chain that was able to accommodate the increased demand there? Very good question, because, we ha- because the demand w- went through the roof, and we just we could not have... Let me explain what I explained to a, a local uh, uh, media interview when they asked me why, why we don't have enough manufacturing capacity. You know, every 4th of July, there are about a million to two million people go to the Boston to the Charles River to watch the pops playing. And they all want to come on, uh, on public transportation. There's not enough cars, there's not enough buses complaining every year. But you cannot hold, you know, five times as many buses and, and rail cars as you need just for one day a year. That's what we, are happy, uh, we see now. So the solution, the solution is three-pronged three, uh, solution. First of all, hospitals have to be treated like banks. Banks are required to have, say, to have uh, a reserve. Hospitals will have to be mm-hmm. required and stress-tested to have reserves. That's first thing. Second thing is national stockpile. Right. Woefully low. Woefully low. It started with the Bush 43 administration actually replenished it very well. The uh, Obama administration did not replenish it after H1N1, Ebola, and Zika. And, of course, the Trump administration didn't do much. But... Uh, so we didn't have enough of a national stockpile. And the last leg of this three-legged stool is to have people in reserve who can mend the ventilators and help hospital. And for this, I'm calling for something like, we can think about a medical national guard. People who come, who right. just train, you know, once a year, and then come, you know, one week in the month to help, uh, uh, to help hospitals. All of this, but the main thing in terms of supplies, focused on a strategic, like the, like the strategic petroleum reserve, we should have a strategic medical right. reserve with, with enough heft to be able to withstand weeks and weeks and months of, uh, of a pandemic like we have now. And finally, we wrap things up with a little ETF intelligence about the dislocation in oil markets. The wave of contagion that started in fixed-income products a few weeks ago has now set in for commodities. Reggie Brown, principal at GTS and the so-called godfather of ETFs, shared his view on the turmoil that we saw in USO, the biggest oil ETF, and what the impact may be on the future of this space. It's been a, a busy month and a half in the ETF market, starting with fixed income and just how they're structured now, looking at the energy ETFs. are. Uh, products um, holistically. You know, but look, to your question, um, anytime you have a stress market, um, you know, it starts to show the designs 
and you know, depends on how things are, are brought to the marketplace, things to watch out. And you look at uh, USO and a number of other energy ETPs. I wouldn't classify them as ETFs because they uh, have static amount of shares available, and when that is exhausted, they have to file and create new shares. But in the USO case, uh, it was built to track the underlying futures. So you're not necessarily investing in oil, per se, but the future contracts. And then you had some macroeconomic supply issues and oversupply, and Super Tango popped up, and all of a sudden um, USO is behaving uh, as if the futures are trading at negative. In this case, they were. And so you had some mm-hmm. uh, some issues around just, one, the ability to create new shares. The ETF or ETP was behaving uh, in that manner. And now you have a lot of supply where the future front-month future contract was trading negative and the remaining curve was behaving in that fashion, too. Reggie, how much of the sell-off do you think was tied to USO simply being too big and therefore not being able to create any more shares? Katie Greifeld of Bloomberg News uh, reported that USO recently held about one quarter of one U.S. futures contract on the NYMEX. Well, I, I think you need to go back and examine the underlying uh, asset class. So, you know, is the outstanding uh, futures, is 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 it too large for the marketplace to absorb? Is the number of market participants not large enough to handle um, the shocks of movement? You know, I think it really comes down to, you know, fundamentally, there's just too much oil in the global marketplace and no place to store it. And then you had Contango because of that. So I don't think necessarily it is the ETP USO was too large. And then how um, the rule set around how um, the ETP rolls their futures from month to month, and then how the marketplace behaved around that. So I think there's a number of input factors here. You know, I, I know USO in particular um, likes to be thought of in a negative light by the pundits, but let's just go back yeah. to how it was designed and what it was intended to do. Uh, I'm curious, Reggie, just uh, not just with regards to USO, but really the, the broader uh, ETF and ETP space. Do you think that um, what these uh, these products are invested in and more importantly, uh, how they invest, how they balance out and rebalance from time to time, that that's transparent enough? Because there was a lot of anecdotal uh, reports about the, the, the proverbial retail investors, the mom and pop investors who seem confused as to what was actually in this particular uh, ETF, what they were actually buying and what they were exposed to. And we sort of saw the same issue arise back during Volmageddon, where you had folks piled into those volatility ETFs that didn't seem to understand what maybe they had bought into? Well, you know, investor education is a, is a big component um, in looking at uh, exchange-traded products overall. I do agree with you that education is important. You know, I don't know, I can't characterize if mom-and-pop retail understood what they were buying. I would say that there's a lot of disclosures in the, in the, you know, in the documents leading up to it, and then even on most retail platforms, there's special buttons and and additional uh, paperwork you have to pull out in order to to trade, you know, some of the inverse leverage and some of the ETP products. So I, I think that there's enough education out there to, to for someone to, to to get a hold of and say, look, you know, this is what is invested in. Here's how it behaves. I think more importantly. You know, and what I'm looking at, and it's quite a bit of chatter in the professional circles of the CME's decision um, to allow uh, a negative future contract, 
and then um, and then negative options. So I think there is some concern out there around investor protection and unlimited liability risk. You know, if you're if you're a holder of of a future or, or an option now. So I think that overall we should be looking at uh, large large scale investor protection around the whole sector, not just the ETP, but in futures and options, and then you know how that was come to about going forward. Mm-hmm. So largely, I know ETFs or ETPs are largely looked at as instruments of, of potential volatility caps, and I think that that is a misnomer and unfortunate. But look, look at mm-hmm. this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at energy ETFs, uh, they're traded in a specific commodity, and when that commodity starts being stressed one way or another, you're going to have some reactions to that. Well, by actively shifting its mix of contracts, not once, but twice, USO is really kind of no longer a passive product. It's actually become more active. Reggie, do you think this is a permanent shift? And what does it say about other passive funds that track commodity futures? Well, look, I think the they definitely roll their futures. I definitely they have public disclosures about when they um, the, the mix of futures they use, front month, the second month, third month, and, and out. Um, and in U.S. USO's case, they've been following 8K, seems like, every day uh, to announce uh, different adjustments. But I think the managers of that complex is looking at the reality that the front month is trading negative, and you now had the ability to go negative. So someone had the ability to actually uh, not just lose their investment, but owe. And so that ETP was following that. So it's really a special case. But there's a number of, of ETPs, uh, inverse leverage, uh, USO, DBO, they all have different uh, structures uh, centered around futures. And so someone investing in these products need to understand how the futures markets work, its regulation, and then, yeah. and then once you understand that, how the ETPs are structured. It's very important. So I'm curious to get your take on just the, some of the market-making activity that goes on behind the scenes uh, of these products. Uh, do you think that the regulatory environment, the way it's set up, uh, is enough to allow for uh, you know a fluid sort of matching price matching between buyer and seller is something more need, does does something more need to be done well look i'm a big proponent of harmonization of regulatory oversight between the sec nfa cftc you know you got to get everyone on the same page and i think sometimes there needs to be harmonization around there but from the etf uh, market making standpoint I know the ecosystem is pretty robust, and uh, there's enough intelligence out there to handle the capacity. Um, and I think investors have enough protections from an ETF perspective, you know, what to expect. But largely, you know, we're still in an environment of lessons learned, and we'll look back at this episode and figure out some empirical data and look for some refinement. But where my focus is, is around the negative contracts on uh, for futures and now negative strike options mm. and, uh, and options and what that's going to entail uh, for the little guy as they're investing in these products. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.